others. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, please. In Galatians chapter 6, Paul speaks of three traps, three ways that we get ensnared. I'm just going to give them to you. We're going to think about them together for a few minutes together. Trap number one, Paul speaks about people who are trapped by unnoticed sin. Look with me at verse 1. It says, if, in Greek, that if is a third-class condition, which means that this is almost undoubtedly going to happen. If anyone is caught in a transgression, and they undoubtedly will, if they're caught, the word for caught, prolambano in Greek, is a passive voice, which means to be entrapped, to be ensnared. It is like a bear trap that has clipped your leg and broken your bones. You're caught. If you're caught in any transgression, paraptoma, this is the word that means that you are, you've fallen beside. You have, if I was trying to walk the straight line, stoikamai is the word that he uses in Galatians chapter 5 to walk in a straight line. And here he says, if you've fallen off that line, if you're like a drunk man trying to make his way home, You've fallen aside. This is somebody who has a repeated pattern of sin, someone who has been practicing something that now is caught up with him. He's trapped. He's trapped by unnoticed sin. Do you see it in the text? If any one of you are caught in any transgression, he's trapped by unnoticed sin. Trap number two. Paul speaks about people who are, who are trapped by unnoticed, unnoticed pride. Look with me down in verse 3. For if anyone thinks that he is something, when he is actually nothing, he deceives himself. Paul uses a Greco-Roman maxim, a, a proverb that was well known throughout all of secular uh, antiquity. If any one of you thinks he's something when he is nothing, mm, he deceives himself. It was a well-known proverb. Paul pulls this out of the secular culture, and he applies this here to the Galatians to say there are some people who are trapped because they don't understand or notice their sin. There are other people who are trapped because they don't notice their pride. And what's interesting about these two twin snares or these two twin traps in Galatians chapter 6 is that it's actually very difficult to avoid either one of them because here's what happens. You have a person who is a secular person or somebody who's struggling to, uh, to, f- to save themselves, to work out through comfort or achievement or promotion or uh, uh, possession, whatever it may be, to find their source of security or their spiritual life. They are very aware of their pride, honest. They're, frankly, they would tell you that. They're very aware of their pride. Um, like Frank Lloyd Wright, you know, the great uh, 20th century architect that once said that I had to choose either between an honest arrogance or a false humility. 
And I simply chose the former. <laughs> Frank Lloyd Wright was this incredibly proud man. He was a very talented architect, but he, was, he made no bones about it. He was very aware of his pride. I mean, you can just see his pride over the hills of Osage County in Bartlesville, that skyscraper, right? So Frank Lloyd Wright was honest about his pride. He, he could see that he was a proud man because he had to lean into his pride because he was saved by his beautiful works of architecture. But he didn't notice his sin. And there are others of us who are caught in the second trap where we're Christians, perhaps, and we are really good at specifying sin. We're so good at specifying sin that we have created a checklist. Don't do that one. I'm good. Mm, don't do that one either. And I'll look, my, look down my nose at somebody who does. But people who over-specify their sin who are so focused on the individual peccadilloes, the particular sins, their pet sins that they try to avoid, almost always are not aware of their pride. Have you met people like that? Have you ever looked in the mirror and seen someone like that? Christians tend sometimes to overspecify sin, and they don't notice their pride, whereas unbelievers tend to be very honest about their pride, but they don't even believe in sin, so they don't notice their sin. You have traps for both people here. You have the trap for the person who doesn't see their sin. He's caught in any transgression. And then you see the people that Paul says, hey, you should restore that person gently. Pneumaticoi, spiritual ones, you should restore him. But do so in a spirit of gentleness. Why? Because if you don't, you're going to fall into the second trap, which is so pervasive in the church. You overspecify your sin and you judge other people by these sins that you keep, try so hard to keep that you don't notice yourself, your own sense of rampant pride, that the sinner actually is very aware of in his own life. But you, oh, spiritual one, you don't see it. Are you with me? Do you see that twin dynamic that's at play here? It's very, very difficult. It, this is um, something of what uh, the Roman Catholic author uh, Flannery O'Connor spoke so much about in her short stories. The way that in the Protestant South, people were so easily um, uh, avoiding sins as a way to keep God where they wanted Him to be, safe and in a little box that they've created Him to stay in. And so, therefore, if they keep these 10 commandments or 20 commandments or 50 commandments or whatever it is that they may do, they subtly fall into the same trap that the Pharisees fell into in the New Testament. Jesus had something to say to somebody like this one time, didn't he? The rich young ruler. Remember the story where Jesus comes to the rich young ruler, a man who had undoubtedly fallen into the second trap, someone who was probably... Um, very good at noticing the sins of others and perhaps being the one to go and rescue him. And Jesus says, what does the Lord say to do? What are the Ten Commandments? And he rattles them all off. And he says, I've kept them all. I have kept, I'm very aware of my sin, he was saying to Jesus. I can number it. Don't do that one. Don't do that one. I don't do that one. <laughs> I've kept them all, Jesus. And then what does your Savior do to you and to me and to the rich young ruler? He says, go sell everything you have and give to the poor. Because you've created a checklist, again, that though you believe you're saved by grace, you do not live that way. 
And you begin to believe that God loves you more when you keep this certain set of laws or rules that you've made for yourself that is beyond the bounds of the gospel. Jesus says, I tell you, truly, truly, I say unto you, your pride is killing you. What if I were to say to you, what is the greatest threat to your family? What if it was you? What if it was your inability to recognize your pride? What if you were so defensive when you were corrected that you were almost untouchable? In February, we prune our rose bushes, don't we? We prune them, we cut them down around Valentine's Day to get them ready for the summer and for the next fall. What if, what if you're like a rose bush? Do you know how hard it is to prune a rose bush? You've got to wear gloves, and you bleed a lot if you mess with them. Some of you have become so defensive about your sin that when you get close to you, you get pricked. And, and we have to, therefore, be very gentle with you, as you have to be with me, because I am pokey too. And we have to learn as a community what it means for us to recognize both our sin, but also at a deeper level have to recognize our pride because there are twin traps for us. The secular, unchristian tends to fall in the first one. We're caught in sins. We don't recognize our long patterns of sin. But the Christian tends to fall into the second one. We're very good at numbering our sins, but we often forget the deeper systemic sins that we've fallen prey to, our sense of pride. I long for us to be a church that's able to help us see both of those in our lives so that we can do what the text asks us to do. If any one of you is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. We should mend the net, literally in Greek. You should set the bone. That's what the word image is. In a spirit of gentleness, but you keep watch. You scopeo. The word scopeo, to watch, sounds like the word scope yourself out in English. You're scoping yourself out. Watch yourself, lest you too be tempted. What if the greatest threat to your marriage wasn't something else out there, your spouse, your children, your circumstance? What if it was you? We cannot begin to live out Galatians chapter 6 in this church or in this community or in your family until you recognize that maybe as you read this text, you're the one caught in the sin. You know, we all tend to read this text as though we're the ones who are supposed to restore him because that's where the imperative lies, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But what if the whole trick to understanding Galatians chapter 6 is actually reading it where you are the one caught in the sin? And perhaps it's not even until you can understand the text in that way that you are rightly able to be able to restore one gently. Because it is not gentle when you go to someone and say, you know what, I'm sorry you struggle with that sin. I used to struggle with that sin one billion years ago before I was a spiritual one, pneumaticoy, I'm spiritual. And you should straighten up. But what if you went to your brother and your sister and you saw them in this repeated pattern of sin and you went to them and you said, can I share something with you? I don't share this with you because I've got my act together. I don't. But I've noticed this repeating pattern 
And I just want to ask you, um, if you can help me ex- explain to me why you do that. What's going on that causes you to do that? Is that something that you're conscious of? Just asking really honest questions to somebody is a way to restore them gently. And you know what the hardest thing about this is? Trap number three. Trap number one is that you don't notice sin, the trap of unnoticed sin. Trap number two is the trap of unnoticed pride. And trap number three is that you frankly just don't care. Notice it says, the very first word is Adelphoi, brothers. Brothers. It assumes that you care. And in a church that is like ours as we grow and as we have people in Tulsa and Sky Took and Collinsville and Owasso, we're pretty spread out. And so we try to incubate in community groups throughout the course of the week. But it is very easy to not care, isn't it? But what if... What if I were to ask you, what is the greatest threat to this church? What if it were you? I ask that question of myself every week. And the Lord has made me more and more aware of the fact that the greatest threat to Trinity, in my estimation, honestly, this is not preacher hyperbole, is me. My tendencies the way that I prepare for sermons, the way that I handle disagreements, the way that I love my wife, the way that I shepherd my children. Like, what if, what if the logs, or let me say it this way, what if the specks that you see in each other's eyes when you look at them and you see all that they've done what if they were just reflections of the logs in your own eyes? What if we were a church that could say together, until we see logs in our own eyes? That's the journey we're on. Growing in self-awareness more and more and more so that we're able to avoid the landmine of unnoticed sin. We're very aware of it. We also are aware of the systemic subtle sins of pride, of envy, of conceit, of rivalry, things he speaks of in Galatians chapter 5 and verses 25 and uh, 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 26 at the very end of chapter 5. But what if we could be a church that said, I see the logs in my own eye. And you know what happens when you begin to see logs in your own eye? You begin to love. Thomas Watson one time said, until sin be bitter, grace will never be sweet. And until we can recognize sin for what it is, bitter as it is, we can never demonstrate and love each other as we're called to love one another. The title of the sermon is called Signs of Hope. And the signs of hope are the signs that we begin to love each other enough to be in each other's life, to care for each other and to confront and to restore each other. The means of restoration in this church are not only the elders or Pastor Scott or myself. The means of restoration are you in the life of one another. Paul Tripp contrasts self-love with true love. He says that it is self-love that hates difference. 
It is self-love that makes you impatient. It is self-love that makes you want your own way. It is self-love that convinces you that your way is the right way. It is self-love that makes winning more attractive than unity. But love celebrates the grace of change that operates in the middle of the difficulties of difference. Love prizes unity and is willing to make sacrifices to achieve it. Love turns difference into an opportunity to experience a deeper and a fuller unity. Love isn't impatient, and it doesn't walk away. Love perseveres. Love stays active until what God has planned becomes your actual experience. Love listens, it works, and it waits. Unity happens when love intersects with difference. And all of us are different in this church. And we have ample opportunity to be able to have eyes to see where we have developed patterns in our own life. Perhaps we see them so well because we see the reflections of the logs in our own eyes. And we know ourselves so well that we see ourselves in other people, and it, makes, it grates against us because they're so similar to our personality or to our tendencies. But what if we could be a church that actually moved toward one another and restored each other in a spirit of gentleness and of love? The signs of hope and the signs of a revival for a church begin when people move toward each other and they help them recognize the deleterious effects of sin and the dangers of pride. Both are unnoticed. One tends to be unnoticed by the secular guy who could care less about sin because he doesn't believe in it. And the other tends to be unnoticed by the Christian who's got all of his sins tied up in a nice little bow to keep Jesus away from him, but he doesn't recognize how arrogant and self-consumed he's become. But if we can be a church that avoids the third trap, that avoids this sense of indifference, that avoids the sense of I don't care, that can really move and love each other enough, to care enough to confront each other, even at the risk of fracturing temporarily a sense of fellowship in the relationship, let the Lord reign there in gentleness you're wanting to win your brother. You're wanting to win your sister. You're wanting to purify the church. You're, you're practicing church discipline, just like the preached word is every week. You're doing that together. That's what the church is called to be and called to do. What if the greatest threat to your family was you? What if the greatest threat to your marriage was you? What if the greatest threat to this church was you. Augustine said, if you should ask what are the ways of God, I would tell you that the first way is humility, the second way is humility, and the third way is humility. Not that there are no other precepts to give, but if humility does not precede all that we do, then our efforts are fruitless. Jonathan Edwards says, humility then is the most essential thing in true religion. The whole setting of the gospel and everything that belongs to the new covenant should have this effect upon the hearts of men. Without it, there can be no true religion, whatever profession may be made, and however intense the person's religious affections appear to be. Are you able to say, until I have logs? Are you able to say, until I see in my own eyes the logs that are there. Because when you're able to say that, you're able to live out what Galatians 6.1 says, but if you're not able to see the logs in your own eye, you're not able to do so gently. 
Because Paul warns us, if anybody thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. The word that Paul gave uh, in Galatians chapter 5 to set this passage up, as he said, do not let us become conceited. We saw that word last week, didn't we? It's the word kinodoxane, empty glory. To become conceited is like somebody who just trades in a small piece of Tupperware with nothing in it for a bigger piece of Tupperware with nothing in it. Somebody who trades in their Tupperware for something larger, a bigger container, empty glory, space. But Jesus was the kenosis, wasn't he? He was the one who emptied himself of glory in Philippians chapter 2, as we saw last week. Jesus was the one who was full of glory, and yet Jesus emptied himself of the right to demonstrate how powerful he was on earth. Jesus was the one who had all the glory in the world, but he emptied himself of that prerogative. Why? For you, so that he might go to death on a cross. So that it's with Jesus that we see the perfect balance of truth with grace and tenderness with conviction and power with gentleness and self-sacrifice without failure and weakness without fear and strength without bullying and sovereignty without injustice and mercy without sentimentalism and anger without bitterness and tears without hopelessness and intensity without burnout and brightness without blinding and touch without abrasiveness and zeal without harshness. No wonder the needy were drawn to him. Jesus drew the desperate folks who were intoxicated with his glory. The broken found wholeness. The sick experienced healing. Those in darkness saw light. Those in lies perceived the truth. The downcast received, revived in hope. The shaken, they fled to the refuge. The hungry, new satisfaction. And those in chains were unleashed into freedom. Are you trapped? Please, Christian, hear me. If you feel like you are good with God because you have stopped doing particular sins over the years, maybe some that you used to do a lot, and you have subtly used that checklist to gauge how right with God you are, please hear the gospel again because you do not believe it. The gospel is the gospel of grace. Nothing that you've done. And the Father's verdict upon you is righteous sinless because of the work of Jesus Christ. That's how he sees you. And we are to therefore live into that life, to become who we are. And therefore, is it a small price to pay to do what Paul calls us to do, to gently restore our brothers and sisters when we see each other falling and when we see each other stumbling? Oh, friends, let us have eyes to see how we can love each other well. Please help me. Help my children. Help me see my sin. Let's have a 360 view of one another and let's walk together to be the kind of community that Christ calls us to be because then there will be a sign of hope for us. Three traps. You see your pride, but you do not notice your sin. Trap number one. Trap number two. You may see your sins and catalog them very well, but you do not notice your pride. And trap number three. You just don't care enough to do it. You don't care enough to move close to people. You've put your heart in the midst of thorns and thistles, lest people get too close to you and they get pricked. Take those thorns down. And when you come to the supper this morning, 
come with a tender heart, asking Jesus to make you less self-defensive and more open to correction and to rebuke and to cry out to him. For it was fitting that Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. Do you put your trust in your elder brother, Jesus Christ, who ran for you to bring you back to the Father's house, who celebrates with you, and who clothes you with his righteousness? Allow him to liberate you. Allow him to lead you away from those traps. Allow him to lead you into the liberty we have in the gospel to love each other well. As we help each other do that, we will as a church begin to have signs of hope. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to recognize our tendencies as Christians, to perhaps catalog our sins in such a way that causes us to think that we do not need repentance or to suggest that somehow you are good with us because of our performance. And, oh, Father, help us to recognize that your verdict upon us is righteous, my holy one, not because of our performance, but because of the work of Jesus. And Father, if there are any here who are so aware of their pride, but they do not believe in sin, would you help them to recognize that it is the wages of sin that leads to death? And would you open their heart even this morning to believe the good news of the gospel? And would you help us, Father, to move toward each other, to love each other well, to restore each other, to mend our broken bones and to mend our nets in such a way that we demonstrate true signs of hope and of life as your community in Owasso. Lord, these are our prayers, and we pray them together as a family, as sisters and as brothers, beggars in need of your grace. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.